What is going on, everyone? Casey Adams here. Welcome back to the Rise of the Young podcast. On today's episode, we have Dennis Hegstad here on the show, the co-founder of Live Recover, an SMS abandoned cart recovery platform. I first met Dennis on an app called Clubhouse, which is an invite-only social media platform that a lot of tech people are on. And we had a great conversation on there that prompted us to connect on Twitter. And since then, we connected. I was intrigued by his story and the platform that he's, he has created. And I'm sure you will be as well once you listen to today's podcast. So before we get into it, please take a moment to share this podcast with a friend. That is how the show grows Literally, a single word-of-mouth promotion goes a long, long way. So please send it to a friend. Make sure you subscribe and enjoy today's podcast with Dennis Hegstad. All right, what is going on, everyone? Casey Adams here. Welcome back to the Rise of the Young podcast. Today, we have Dennis Hegstad on the show, the co-founder of Live Recover. Thanks so much for coming on, Dennis. Yo, appreciate you having me, man. For sure. So we connected on Clubhouse. I know we were just talking about that, but when I came across your product, Live Recover, I found it fascinating. And for the for the people that don't know what Live Recover is, can you take a moment to tell us what it is and when you started it? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, Clubhouse is dope. Shout out Clubhouse. And, <laughs> uh, Live Recover, we specifically do abandoned cart recovery for e-commerce stores, but our unique value prop, uh, you know, our differentiator from another company is that we have live real people doing all the texting. Um, and most other competitors use an automated chat solution because, you know, that scales. Uh, we want to be, you know, more of like a real-time support and sales, uh, you know, extension of a, of a business. So you're not just thinking of us like, an automated solution uh, and then it started in 2018 over the summer okay uh prior to live recover i was consulting at fashion nova with rich and julian Got and it. so i was doing some paid media stuff there for six to eight months and helping with adding some tech stuff there yep. and then i realized like there was kind of like an early wave of you know some sms and also facebook messenger bots was like more important then and yep. so we kind of just built something that made sense after a couple of months of leaving working with them and you know, two years, a little over two years later, we're, we're still here and kicking it. Very cool. Did you have a tech background prior to launching it or what, what did that look like? Um, I wouldn't, I don't know, kind of a blend, right? I'm a marketing guy and a product guy and I, you know, yep. like anything other than actually writing code, yeah. but <laughs> at the end of the day, I can read and write some code, but I'm not the one that's the best suited for it. My yeah. co-founders are CTO, but before this, I had a tech platform called Exposely. That was an influencer marketing platform, which I know now is like, oh, everyone's had one of those. And that's why (laughs) I stopped it. But we launched in 2013 and we were what's called like a self-serve ad platform that was like completely self-serve. It wasn't like you had to talk to influencers. They they opted in and bid on a a performance-based model of like cost per click, cost per install, cost per post, cost per whatever. And you could, it was all automated. So it was pretty early on. Um, and then in 2016, we shut down. Okay. Uh, and then after that, I got back into e-commerce just because I had so many relationships with influencers and e-commerce was like thriving. So all of our customers were either e-commerce or content sites. Yeah. For the most part. Um, and then affiliate stuff and things like that. But yeah, so before I wouldn't say a tech background, even then I had a team of engineers, Yep. but I knew enough not to get, you know, scammed or cheated by a developer or agency that would drag me out and spend, you know, a, a life you know, like yeah. a, a year long of salary or more. Right. Totally. So, yeah. Very cool. 
When was the moment when you recognized there was an opportunity for abandoned cart recovery? Because I know on the site, you guys do a great job at showcasing what the product is. Like, when did you see that opportunity and what made you dive all in on that specific category of e-com? Uh, well, I mean, prior to, like I said, prior to doing, I had an experience with e-com even since like I launched my first store on MySpace days uh, back in 2008. And even then, like e email abandoned cart recovery was always something that existed. And, yep. and that even now that's still like the, the king and SMS totally. might be temporarily the queen um, in terms of channels. But so it was kind of like, okay, that is the highest intent event that someone does is they go to the checkout specifically, put their info and then they abandon. Yep. Uh, that's what we do. We don't even do abandoned cart recovery because we collect the phone number at checkout, not prior to getting to checkout. So technically we're abandoned checkout recovery. And for us, that means we can send the least amount of messages and have the highest potential return and value provided back. Um, and so Got for it. us, it okay. was kind of a no brainer. Like we didn't want to build, build the MailChimp of SMS. Yeah. We wanted to just build like the steak knife, not really the Swiss army knife. No, that makes sense for sure. So what do you think have been the biggest challenges over the course of since 2018, when it comes to building the company, building the tech platform and obviously scaling, especially during the year 2020, like what were some of the biggest challenges that you guys have faced and what have you learned through that? I think, uh, if we had been not, not to say we should have been more ambitious, but if we had decided from the beginning, which we didn't to build a platform, we could have scaled faster because some people are deciding that they want to use a platform and maybe they don't want the human powered element because they'd rather save a little money and use one tool that does everything like an SMS list versus an SMS, you know, pop-ups and, and everything else. Right. And that's okay too. That's just not the right client for us. Cause we don't want to work with brands that treat SMS like they do email. It's yep. not the same thing. Uh, so we made that, you know, intentional decision and that could be a short, you know, a crutch, but at the same time, it means that like we're working with the kinds of brands we want to work with. We're doing things our way. Um, and because we're bootstrapped yep. and we're profitable, we can make that choice. So I think there hasn't really been real hurdles per se, but the yeah. setbacks are knowing like, Hey, we watched our competitor raise $390 million at attentive. We oh see PostScript, which we're friends with PostScript and all of our, you know, SMS bump and some yep. of our competitors. And we, we send them business because we know that we're not always the ideal fit. Um, but you know, that would be a hurdle, but that was something that we chose to do. So I think it's, you know, yeah. you have to take, take well, it how you ask for it. Right. hundred percent. Absolutely. When it comes to your background at working at Fashion Nova, what did you learn working there? I, I actually haven't had Rich on the podcast yet, but we've talked about it a bunch and I'm definitely looking forward to it. But what we'll did you... Him. He's a cool guy. For sure. What did you learn working there and what even led you to land that gig of consulting with a brand like Fashion Nova? Um, so I met Rich through a friend named Dan Snow who owns an agency and he also owns yeah. a bunch of Actually, I've had Dan on the Daniel Snow on the podcast. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Dan's a good friend. And so Dan was visiting me, or not just me, but he was in LA and we were hanging out and we went to some uh, some dinner at this place called The Nice Guy. Yep. And Dan brought his friend Rich and Rich was like, oh, I own Fashion Nova. And then we went back to Rich's house and he had some products on his on his desk or on his kitchen counter. And one of the products was mine. And I was <laughs> no way. Branded black charcoal masks, and he was doing research like, "Wow, these these masks are scaling so quick." And I'm like, "That's my brand." Uh, <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, I'll pay you to come do this for me," because yeah. uh, I think maybe he didn't have a lot of trust in some of the agencies he were working with. Um, but the thing I learned most was, I think if you know how to do media buying, it's way easier to jump into a brand that's killing it like Fashion Nova and scale them versus taking a brand from zero and helping them start make their first ten thousand of them. 
Yeah. Right. Anybody that's a media buyer, in my opinion, could jump into a Fashion Nova or a color pop or a big brand and say, Hey, look, we scaled them from like half a million to a million a month or, or however many yeah. millions we spend. <laughs> but going from zero and saying, Hey, I helped this brand make their first 10, 20 K a month is like a lot harder. It's a different type of participation. Yeah. So I learned, I think I had more fun at the beginning stages and starting from zero to one than going <laughs> from like five to 10. But uh, that's why there are certain people who like to build and some who like to scale. Yeah, absolutely. Love that, man. What has been the biggest lesson you've learned from building a tech company and what advice would you give to a founder that's looking to start a SaaS company or any type of tech company out there based on your experience? If, if you can find a co-founder who's really technically savvy and you might not be that person and you have good ideas, but you could either afford to pay them, definitely, definitely do that and, and look for the right people, like spend a lot of time on that because you might waste months working with the wrong people. Yeah. Um, or just over investing in things that don't really matter uh, at the end of the day, like designs don't matter that much. People care about if stuff works. Yeah. So like a lot of people <laughs> over, over and invest in things that like they can worry about later. Um, once you have five customers, you can worry about reinvesting in some cool graphics and cool yeah. designs. But <laughs> ever built the first product because you over invested in stuff. I would say, yeah, like just be scrappy and, and try to get started. Um, but also like software is awesome in comparison to e-commerce. I love both. But you don't go from zero to millions a month like you can and potentially or even a year, right, in, in SaaS or software the same way that you can with e-commerce. But at the same time, you don't have to worry about overhead and inventory. Yeah. You don't have to worry about 3PLs and logistics, returns. It's pretty much build it once and sell it forever Yeah. Uh, as long as you don't get to, like depreciated by new tools. So I yep. think that that's if you know you think about it that way, you can make it once and just keep selling it for, for years. That's a great that's a great position to be in. Very cool. I know that you said um, earlier um, you guys have the flexibility because you're already profitable. Have you guys raised money when it comes to building the product or like, was it all bootstrapped like you said? Yeah. So from the beginning, uh, my business partner and I had the, had the luxury of both doing e-commerce and having some cash flow from other projects where we basically beta tested yep. live recover on our own stores. And we were like, yeah. okay, <laughs> we were our own customers. We'd already been making a little bit of money. Um, and I had the network through Twitter yep. and Instagram and whatnot. So within the, within the first month, we were already profitable, but we didn't pay ourselves anything for the first eight months. And okay. most people probably can't do that. Yeah, for sure. That's huge. And, and I think that's a, a very important topic to even dive in more about like launching a product and making your first dollar becoming profitable, especially for a tech company. Like that's something you see all these companies raising hundreds of millions of dollars, but it's like, okay, are they profitable? Where are they going? And yes, there's value in that, but what's your thoughts on the VC world? I know that, like I said at the beginning, we connected on clubhouse and there's a lot of high level VC talk and companies that are raising, you know, a, a series C hundred, $200 million. Like what's your thoughts on that? Is that something you have planned or what does the future look like for live recover? So for us, we had, you know, after our competitors or, or I don't even like to call the competitors, but you know, attentive and whoever else postscript SMS bump, they all, you know, attentive raised 395 million. So every VC that didn't get involved with their round has come to us and said, Hey, are you, are you building a, an attentive competitor? We see you're like one of the market leaders yeah. and we're like, no, we're not, you know, our, our goal is, you know, and we're already doing a few million a year in recurring revenue. And yeah. by the end of next year, our goal is to be close to, you know, five to six and 10 maybe, right. Yeah. If we're doing 10 million a year in recurring revenue and we're profitable, we make great margins. I don't want to raise VC. I want to, they, and they don't want that. They think that's a small business. You guys aren't going for a hundred million or, or 500 million. And we're like, no, like my odds at that point are pretty low. 
I know that at the smaller scale, I have better odds. And if if I'm bootstrapped and I don't have to listen to anybody else, then it's like 10 million a year with, you know, 50% margins, let's just say. Yes. You and your co-founder own it together. You could split two and a half million each if you didn't want to reinvest in buying new businesses. You just wanted to make it your cash machine. That's that's amazing. I don't think anybody, you know, and at that point of VC, like if you raise hundreds of millions, you have to sell for billion plus at 10% of your own money right left maybe yeah. five you're still yeah you're getting a lot more but that risk is i don't know i think your chances are better in the smaller ranges plus if you want to do vc after you've had some smaller wins call a million dollar exit or a 10 million dollar exit a smaller win which is still a, gr- a huge win yeah for sure but smaller win after that if you wanted to go do your next business a vc would have much higher conviction in, totally. in investing in you plus you might be able to bootstrap and then raise at a much better valuation so i think it's in your favor to try to do it on your own if you can it's not always the case um it just depends on your experience and yep. maybe your age and how big your idea is but very cool man no that's that was great insight for sure i, I do want to take a step back though like before live recover what was your childhood like where did you grow up go to school did you go to college like what did that part of your life look like uh i was a I grew up in San Francisco until school started, I guess, like first grade. And then I was in Houston until grade school, high school. Then my space, I played competitive video games back in like 2004. Before it was like the real, yeah, uh, Counter-Strike <laughs> yeah. Counter-Strike specifically. And then I was, you know, I got into computers heavily MySpace came out. I became a super emo scene kid with straight <laughs> hair, emo, you know, like, yeah. And, well, wow. I'm really? A minor, just a just a MySpace kid, but I yeah. kind of got to I don't know 150,000 friends on MySpace. Wow. Started playing, selling T-shirts, uh, touring with bands that were popular on MySpace because I was selling them bulletin posts for money. Okay. Uh, and then I decided, like after I did Warp Tour a couple of years with bands while selling my merch on tour. Yeah. I decided I'm gonna move to LA because all my friends that do music are moving there. Yeah. Uh, then I realized in LA that I didn't really care about t-shirts and selling and, and going to shows it was more like i cared about building products that were yeah. online and so i kind of pivoted from e-commerce to starting to build apps or try to build web properties and i got really into the parody twitter game so i got up to like eight or nine million followers on twitter really and that's, sort of, that's what got me into the exposely platform that i did that was an influencer marketing platform it was because i had built up nine million followers on twitter across all these different meme pages and i wow. was monetizing them in la and that changed my whole perspective on advertising. And I was yeah. doing paid ads on Facebook too. So this whole thing kind of just like shaped itself uh, just over a 15 year. That's <laughs> crazy, I'm man. 31, so. Okay, for sure. Now that, that's dope, man. When it comes to like the meme pages, like back then on Twitter, was it like, were these brands that you ended up building or was it just the meme pages that you still have and own or what happened to them? I ended up selling all of them for a low six figure amount, but I ran them for from 2009, 2008 until 2017. Okay. And at the beginning, I wasn't making any money. I was just trying to build up the numbers because it yeah. was fun. And I got like a hundred thousand followers on three accounts and I thought I was the shit. And then I changed, <laughs> you know, I changed meme accounts. I changed the themes based on like movies coming out. When Ted came out, I made a Ted account. Yeah. I, after yeah. Ted died out, I changed it to shithead Steve or bad yeah. luck Brian. Or any of these old memes and then we would just kind of change them if it made sense and then over time some were staples right like food porn and yeah. house porn and things like that uh but but yeah like for the first year i made no money and then i was like whoa i can make 50 bucks a day right yeah. and after that it's changed it was game over i got addicted yeah uh i love eventually that, it became a you know fifty hundred thousand dollar a month business it was yeah. crazy 
That's so sick, man. That's tight. Do you think there's still opportunity to do that today or is it oversaturated with all these big brands and pages in the space? I think Twitter is harder because Twitter actually banned a bunch of the accounts. They did a huge sweep back actually about a year after I sold my accounts, thankfully. And oh my unfortunately gosh. for the person who bought them, but they sweep like thousands of, of meme accounts. I think on Instagram, you look, you see like, depending on who you are, like fuck Jerry and their Jerry media company. They're absolutely crushing it and doing it in the most professional oh, way. Yeah. I'm actually, um, are, I'm meeting up with uh, Ben from fuck Jerry in a couple hours we're having on the podcast. So funny you bring sick. that up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, shout out them. I mean, they're killing it with like their board games to the tequila to the yeah. just to like how quickly they can scale ideas. I mean, you can see they're like a meme studio. Yeah. So I think there is money in it. And if you saw, I think it was Warner Brothers or Universal acquired the Daquan and Comedy. 80 million stuff or something. Like 80 million. Exactly. So is there money in memes? Yes, but I think you have to do it the right way. It's I don't think the days of copy and pasting content and stealing people's stuff is going to last very long. And yeah. that's why I think if you do it the right way, yeah, you can crush it. For sure. Now that, that's harder, right? Because it's easy to copy and paste things from other people's work and curate and be a curator, but that's not, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, 100%, man. I definitely, um, I want to switch the conversation to back to live recover. Um, when it comes to the brands that you guys work with, I know on the site it says join 2000 plus e commerce brands using live recover. What are the typical brands that you guys work with or have worked with? And for the people out there, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this show. Like, who is the right customer business for your product cool yeah no thanks for that's a good question so we support you know e-commerce brands on shopify woocommerce magento big commerce uh crate joy basically anyone who sells e-commerce online um and if you have you know abandoned carts and you want to win back more revenue <laughs> our app automates sending human it says i say automate as in because we manage it for you with our software but every message is sent by a human uh, so you don't have to do any work, uh, which is which is kind of the goal. Um, but yeah, I mean, the brands are generally not, I wouldn't say anybody who's out the gate starting out. Although what's interesting is if you're a big brand and you're making millions a month and you recover 100,000 a month with Live Recover, that's still a lot of money, but you don't feel it as much as if you're making your first thousand or 2000 a month. And, and then our app brings you another 200 a month. Yeah. You're like, Holy shit, that 200 was a difference between being profitable or not. Yeah. Uh, or, or being able to add another, you know, $10 a day in ad spend or whatever the case may be. Yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't say your any brand is too small, but it's kind of interesting that like, depending on who you are, you might feel the difference yeah. more, but I would say if you have no sales coming in and no traffic, we're probably not the best app just because we recover sales. We don't generate sales. Yeah. If that makes sense. Totally. Um, but yeah. Very cool, man. And I saw that, um, um, shout out to young and reckless. I see that they have definitely used live recover uh, on the site. Those are the homies. <laughs> I know we yeah, talked about, reckless, he was one of the, uh, D was one of the first like five beta testers that we had. I just really? DM'd him. He's like, hey, can you come to the office like today in like the next hour and set us up? And I was like, yeah, I showed up. He wasn't even there and shout out D. And, uh, really? and yeah, the girls that were working, they were like, Hey, yeah, D said you're going to get us set up. And then boom, they just, you know, use the, use the app for like two years. That's great. so tight, man. No, huge shout out to D. I actually, I did two events with drama and D last year. Um, just, you know, live events. We had a bunch of speakers audience. It was super dope, but they've definitely been, they've been on the podcast a couple of times. I've been on group chat love everything they're doing for sure. Yeah. So I want to talk about living in LA, right? You, you live there for how many years exactly? Yeah. About nine years. Well, maybe a little more. 
what was your experience from a business perspective? What did you learn from being out here? I know that we talked about before we started, I just moved out here and I always like to ask people, right? Like what was your experience with living in LA? It's the place that I've, I guess you could say always wanted to move to. I lived in Scottsdale for two years, just came out here two weeks ago. And I've, I've been coming to LA for four plus years now and I, I understand the scene. I have my network out here, but what's your experience when it comes to living here from a business perspective, but also personal I think that LA is amazing. There's so many bright people there. There's so many people there and it's awesome because you get to like rub off that energy as long as you know how to surround yourself with good people and not sort of uh, vultures or mosquitoes <laughs> that suck energy from you. But you know, I, when I moved there, I was 21. So I didn't really know much. I lived basically in a frat house with some friends and paid like 450 a month for a room and rent. Yeah. Uh, and then fast forward when I was leaving, you know, I, I had a nice loft and I, and I loved my place. I lived around so many inspiring people, but I knew from a business perspective, my network grew like 10 X from going yeah. there. And even now I've left LA and I don't really feel like I've left because I'm still involved with conversations and brands and, yep. and friends who are all based in LA because I was there for so long. So I, I feel thankful for that. Um, but from a personal perspective, I did, I found myself getting a little comfortable and maybe over invested in things that didn't really advance my business after I got to a certain comfort level. Yeah, um, which happened at like maybe year seven, okay. not like in the early stages, but like it was like hustle mode because I had nothing. Yeah. But after I got to the comfort comfort zone, I'm like, okay, like instead of doubling down whenever you're winning, it was like sitting down and taking a rest mm. uh, yeah. and having fun and justifying it by hanging out with other people who are successful. Yeah. So I found myself like, oh, because I'm at so-and-so's house and I'm meeting these people and these people who are probably not going to advance my career because they're so far ahead of me. Yeah. Uh, that's almost like an unreasonable ask. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I found myself getting a little caught up in that. And so that's kind of why I left, but that's a personal thing. That's, you know, yeah. not everyone will run into those issues. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, but I think LA is great, right? Like without it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, you know, been able to launch live recover in, in the way that we did and not have the support of a lot of the friends and partners and brands that we have. So yep. I, I kind of owe all that to LA, I think. For sure. Speaking on um, beta testers and launching Live Recover, when you went to launch, like, can you walk me through your launch strategy and how you guys got your first user and what was that like and what did you learn? Because I'm actually, and I'd love to talk to you after this, I'm about to launch a, a software company as well. And going through that beta test is something I'm very intrigued with when it comes to you know getting that first user and actually getting that momentum. So what was your strategy and how did you roll that out? We, I mean, we asked, I'm like, my business partner probably hates this, but I like, I'm okay at, or maybe excessively talk about things on Twitter sometimes <laughs> before they launch just to build up some hype, obviously with, when they're within sight of, of a finish line. Yeah. Um, but you know, I had at least 15 to 25 friends who ran brands who I was telling them about the product and showing them screenshots for probably the two, three weeks leading up to it being completely ready. Yep. And so the day it dropped, we probably had 20 stores in the first two, three days. Okay. Uh, and some of them were doing volume and they were willing to give us feedback because we let them use the product for basically free. Uh, and then after, you know, a month and we didn't have any charge at that point, it was completely performance based, no cost, just a percentage okay. of what we recovered for you. And so a lot of them were like, no brainer. We, we learned after a few months that that wasn't the best way for us to acquire customers because we would never know what the value of them was if we didn't have a fee up front. Yeah. Um, we had to kind of put some block in place. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you can, you know, if you have 25 friends that you can ask, I mean, even five or 10, that's enough to start. And if you can totally. get one person to pay, that means you can get two. And if you can get two, you can get five. And if you can get five, you can get 10. 
Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I have a, you know, even making 500 to to $1,000 a month with a small micro app is yeah. a nice side hustle for, for someone who's younger or, or anyone, right? Like, does yep. anybody want an extra $1,000 a month? I do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's not a lot. I mean, right? Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of ways to get to your first, you know, one, two, five, 10, and then 25, 50 customers. And yep. then from there, you could snowball it if you want to put more time into it. 100%, man. I love that. When it comes to how you think about social media and how you use it personally, what is your... Uh, I guess you could say strategy on social. You talked about, you know, promoting things on Twitter and I know you have a big audience there, but how do you personally use social for your business and what do you recommend founders do based on what you've done? Um, I think it's, I think Instagram is a lot different than Twitter. Like I'm, because I'm, you know, I guess I would consider myself an older user compared to someone who's <laughs> 20 yeah. uh, on Instagram. I, you know, I don't post that much. I just watch what other people post and, and like stuff or you know, catch memes or whatever. Yeah. I don't use LinkedIn for whatever reason. I log in every quarter to say no to automated spam and to prove <laughs> people I do know. And yeah, then yeah. I use Twitter actively because Twitter is very easy to jump into conversation. And I like that about Twitter a lot. So for me, Twitter is where I pretty much do all my, you know, call it prospecting, call it sharing my thoughts and trying to engage with other people who have similar thoughts, whether it's from brands I want to follow or owners of brands I want to connect with and maybe onboard to my app, or if it's other brands I maybe want to invest in. Um, I just started angel investing in some direct to consumer brands. And so cool. I'm slowly starting to expand my, my network. I mean, slowly over a yeah, yeah. 10 year horizon, <laughs> like over time, I, I used to really care about my, like the perception of how my persona looked, if that made sense. Like yeah. I used to only follow under a thousand people. So my number was like three digits at nine, nine, nine or less. <laughs> and then over the last year, I'm like, I'm 31 years old. Do I really care about how many people I'm following? Am I yeah. dumb? I'm like, that's so silly. And then I, so I'm like, okay, so now I follow like 4,000 something people. Yeah. And within that last year, I've met like hundreds of amazing entrepreneurs and people who, who I can help, who are willing to, you know, stick their neck out for me. And, and that's what I think it's all about. So like I, after I stopped caring about how it looked and just kind of being more authentic and using it how I wanted to, I really saw my sort of like network grow. And, yeah. and that's, I think a lot of the core of the sort of community around even our business at Live Recovery. I love that, man. What have you learned about partnerships with brands, but also um, like, you know, bringing on a co-founder and building a team? Like what's your experience with team building and scaling from a culture perspective, especially during this year of, um, you know, everything's remote and there's, you know, a lot of companies going towards that. Is that something you guys have always done? Is it new for you guys or what does that look like? Yeah. So thankfully, or maybe not for some people, but we've always been remote and yep. my business partner and I, uh, I couldn't build the team without him and there's no such thing as a one-man army. So yeah. if you're going to build a business, you have to have a co-founder and build a team or at the end of the day, you are the business. Yeah. And that's not a great position to be in because if you get burnt out and you want to take a week vacation, that means you're not going to make any money for seven days. That means you're going to be stressing for seven days because at the end of the day, you were the business. Yeah. But you need people to rely on and to, to trust to do a good job and you're paying them and they want to be a part of your business. So I think that like, one thing that I'm thankful for is having a co-founder now, having some employees, and we have 11 full-time employees, so we're yep. not huge, but there are people who, if I wanted to go on vacation right now, even though I guess because of COVID, I can't, <laughs> if I wanted to go to the mountains for a week, I could do that, and nothing would catch on fire, yeah. nothing would go down, everything would operate as, as intended, and so that's the beauty of having a team and building a business. You yep. can't, I mean, it's okay with being a one-man team if you want to do that, but there are a lot of stresses that come that you may not know about because 
on Black Friday or th Thanksgiving morning or Christmas morning, your clients are running into issues. And if you don't fix them, you're going to lose customers. And that means you might not pay your rent or your mortgage and, yeah. and you have to feed your kids. Right. And those are like all things that you have to think about when it's just you. Totally. Um, but if you know your business partners got it right. Okay. Less yep. stress. Yep. hundred percent. What, when it comes to bringing on 11 full-time employees, what was the difference from hiring employee number one to employee number 10 on your, based on your experience? What, we didn't do it fast enough. Like we okay. took the first eight months, my business partner and I did all the texts. Oh, wow. We no were, way. We were doing all the texts. Manually yeah. or is it like scripted? Manually. No, it's manually. Wow. Uh, I mean, our messaging are, is queued up with code. So like yeah, yeah. The, we just press send and then our software like generates the message and it's all customized in real time and yeah. things like that. But yeah, for the first, like, I think maybe six to eight months, we did all the messaging ourselves. We had one texting agent. And then instead of like, and we got kind of burnt out, we should have grown faster yeah. instead of, you know, we should have hired five at the beginning yeah. and not paid ourselves for another couple months. But yeah. we were just thinking like, oh, we need to be profitable. We need to be profitable. Let's do the, let's do everything. Yeah. And we also want to learn like how to make the product better and be very involved. So I wouldn't say it was the wrong decision, but it may have not been the the fastest decision or best decision to grow fast. Yeah. Uh, granted it didn't slow growth in our opinion, but at the same time, yeah, that was, that was interesting. But at the beginning, you know, now we have an onboarding process at the beginning. I was like, I didn't know how to hire a person. I didn't know how to train them. I got to, you know, kind of micromanage them and be on yeah. Slack with them and, and, and zoom and, and screen share and kind of look over their shoulder, have them watch me now instead to the same sort of benefit of how you build software, you build it once and then you can continuously sell it. So we learned how to, Oh, let's document the process of onboarding a new person. Yeah. Let's record all this and put it in a Google, in a Google drive. So now when we hire someone, like we interview them and after that, we don't really even need to talk to them. Yeah. They watch videos, they jump in Slack. They have a group chat with all of our other agents. They help each other out yep. and there's instructions and we're like, Oh my God, that's day <laughs> one. We're so yeah. dumb. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's, you know, it's a, you live and you learn. Totally, man. I love that. Last question before we wrap up, Dennis, that is, what would you tell your younger self if you were to restart everything today in the year 2020 based on what you've learned? I would say don't have too many projects. It's easy to get, you know, distracted by shiny object syndrome. And like, if you're early enough and you find a shiny object and you want to double down, just focus on that one thing. Yeah. Uh, but it's better to commit to something and do that for one or two, three years. And at the end of three years have consistent committed growth and focus over like chasing everything. Because at the end of the day, you're always just chasing something again. And it becomes very exhausting. Yeah. Uh, I know because I have a graveyard of projects that I've spent, you know, <laughs> thousands of dollars on up to tens of thousands on that never launched because as soon as one thing took off, I stopped focusing on those. But if I had just either delegated and had people run those for me, or I had just focused on one at a time, I'd probably be you know, maybe further along in terms of financial gains, but at the same time, you know, that's why I've been excited and thankful to have been focused on live recovery for two and a half years, but yeah. Hey, you know, yeah, focus on something. Don't, don't get distracted with every other thing you yeah. know? and try stuff out though, right? You could try like 10 things out in a year when you're young and then find out which one you're most attracted to, whether it's sales, whether it's marketing, whether it's development, yep. writing copy. Um, you don't have to start big. You can start small and yep. like I said, one, two, five, ten. Yeah, hundred percent. I love that. Well, last thing, Dennis, where is the best place for everyone listening to follow you to learn more about Live Recover and just stay in touch with everything that you have going on? Uh, yeah, I think Twitter probably just at Dennis Hegstad on Twitter and Live Recover is just LiveRecover.com. And yeah, shout out Casey. <laughs> I appreciate you. it, Dennis. Thanks so much for coming on today. Yes, sir.